Hi, I'm Adam Davidson, and this is the Planet Money Podcast for September 18th, 2008. This week, we are giving the time when we do these podcasts because this world is changing so rapidly. So everything we're saying is current as of 4.05 p.m. Thursday afternoon. Who knows what tomorrow will be like? I'm here with Laura Conaway. How you doing? How are you? I'm all right. I'm a little tired, I'll be yeah. honest. Keep going. Um, so I'm going to give some quick news headlines. Um, stocks are taking off. I checked a few hours ago and stocks were doing terribly. Now they're way up. Uh, so much for gravity or what? So much for gravity. People were buying up cheap bank stocks. Um John McCain says that the SEC commissioner, Christopher Cox, should be fired. Clearly, John McCain, a big listener to our podcast and Alex Bloomberg's wonderful story about Christopher Cox's leadership of the SEC. And the whole naked short selling and thing the yesterday's short selling. podcast. Exactly. And uh, not a big listener to Alex Bloomberg, uh, New York State Attorney General Andrew Cuomo Someone with a lot of political ambition today is going to probe short sellers. He clearly didn't hear Alex reporting that short sellers can almost certainly not be blamed for the crisis we are in. Later on, you're going to, Laura, you're going to ask me some of listeners' questions. We are getting so many listeners' questions, and we're going to try and answer as many as we can on this podcast, on the blog, through Twitter. We're at twitter.com slash planet money if you want to sign up. And npr.org slash money. We are thrilled to be the number three podcast in iTunes, the third most downloaded. We're bigger the, than Lehman Brothers. We're bigger than Lehman Brothers right now. And, and, and thank you so much. We're going to hear from Ralph Reed, Republican strategist, former uh, head of the Christian Coalition. He's going to talk to us about uh, how this whole crisis looks through the eyes of a steely-eyed political strategist. And afterwards, we're going to answer your questions. So we're lucky to have Ralph Reed, Republican strategist, with us. Um, I literally was just walking down the hallway, and there you were sitting, waiting for another studio. And you I grabbed me. I grabbed you, and you're yeah. running late for a flight, so we're going to talk quick, right? <laughs> uh, and Laura's here, too, Laura Conaway. Hi. Thanks for sitting down with us. You bet. Um, so, Ralph, let me just jump in with this. Uh, you are a Republican strategist. You don't work for the McCain campaign, but you're right. real and really hoping he wins. And right. You're hoping, and I'm strongly supporting him. And you're hoping for a uh, Republican House, a Republican Senate. Um, strikes me, and I I am actually, I, am, I would say I'm truly nonpartisan. That's not um, any kind of uh, fake journalistic objectivity. I'm genuinely nonpartisan. But it strikes me that the economic crisis is really good for Democrats, not so good for your side, because mm -hmm. your side is in charge. The Democrats um, have a much easier time making a strong, we need to reform these crazy banks. I'm not saying that's a good idea. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I'm just saying that strikes me as the state of play. Am I right? I think so. I, I think that um, any time that you're the incumbent party, incumbent White House party, you're viewed uh, accurately or inaccurately as the person in charge of managing the economy. And so when you have a financial crisis of this nature, while I think everybody would agree there's plenty of blame to go around from Washington to Wall Street, it's probably any day you're talking about the economy is probably a better day for Barack Obama than John McCain. I would just add one quick caveat, and that is I think McCain has had some success, measurable success, in taking the economy and turning it into a tax issue. So what he's able to now do is say, okay, 
We have a soft economy. We've lost 600,000 jobs this calendar year. We have the softest real estate market since the 70s, maybe since the 30s, and we have a credit crisis. What's his plan in the midst of that? His plan is to increase the tax on dividends, increase the tax on capital gains. Is that really a good idea when you've got 9% of all the mortgages in America underwater? The his you're talking about now is Barack Obama. Obama. Yeah. He wants to raise the income tax on those making over $200,000 a year, which is basically 21 small businesses. Now, I just want to – And you you turn it into a tax issue, and that's why in some polls you're seeing in answer to the question, who's better able to manage the economy? Obama's advantage, which was two to one in April, is now single digits. So you're talking political science. And for me, I'm a newcomer to, to economics. I'm a newcomer to planet money. The whole thing is new. And one of the things that has been interesting for me about getting acquainted with economics and economists is that they do tend to have ideological persuasions. Mm-hmm. They're just human. But they also talk about economics as more of a you know a pure science or a pure liberal art, that, that, that there are certain facts about economics. And what I hear you talking about is certain facts about political science. And I want to ask, as a person, as a player in the political landscape, how do you reconcile those two things? ideology with capital E economics? Well, uh, keep in mind, I was answering a political question, so I gave a political answer. Sure. I think You're in forgiven. Ter- <laughs> <laughs> I I'm not, I, I, look, I'm a political strategist. I'm not going to apologize for being political. That's kind of what I get paid to do. But I think in terms of economics, you know, you, you, you obviously get a debate as to, you know, is this an empirical science like physics? Is there literally a law of gravity? There are certainly people who are sort of hardcore adherents of the Laffer curve that would argue that when you raise taxes, GDP drops, job creation drops, and so forth. I think with regard to the financial crisis, I think what we've had, and I'm talking pure economics here, is is really a perfect storm of the unintended consequences, the disastrous unintended consequences of what were at the time viewed by almost everyone, with few exceptions, as sound objectives. First was uh, an easy money policy at the Fed. Remember, we were coming out of the attacks of September 11th. Uh, we we lost, uh, you know, probably one percent of our GDP on one day. Um, we lost 600,000 jobs in the financial sector and and other and other sectors after the attacks. So Greenspan and the Federal Reserve wanted to make it easier to get credit. So after inflation, money was free. That was number one. Number two, you had a stated policy goal of the federal government to increase home ownership. I personally think a good goal. I think home ownership is a good goal. I think the average family has 85% of its wealth in its home. And for many, it's the first rung to achieving financial self-sufficiency and a nest egg and having a retirement fund. That's where your equity goes. Yeah, that's where your equity goes. And then the third thing that you had was as the equity market either imploded or had a zero gain between roughly the Internet bubble imploding in April of 2000 and today, people's money fled the equity market and went where? To real estate and other commodities, other tangible properties. So you had people, it was exaggerated in places like the Florida Panhandle and South Florida and places in California. Investors, not homeowners, investors were buying pre-construction homes, lots, 
and condos and just flipping them, and it turned into a gold rush. So those three together, stated policy of increasing home ownership, which helped fuel the subprime market, easy money from the Fed, and wealth fleeing into the real estate sector has come together, and it's going to probably take 18 to 24 months for this pig to work its way through the python. Now, let me... I, I talk to economists mostly, and I can talk to Democrat economists, Republican economists, people who love McCain, people who love Obama. The profession is very – I think they agree on much more than they disagree on. I had a talk with Paul Samuelson, who's the Nobel Prize winning economist, mm-hmm. probably the dean of – let's just call them the left Democratic side associated with Kennedy. And I, and I talked to people closely associated with Milton Friedman, the Reagan Revolution, and they all said, we agree on so much more than we disagree. And then in the political spectrum, it, it almost sounds like Obama and McCain don't agree on a single thing. I know their advisors. I know Asa Goolsby. I've talked to Douglas Holtz-Aiken. I know right. that I could sit them down, and if I had a list of 100 economic issues, they'd agree on 98 of them. Is that is that you guys? Is that... I mean, is it in the interest? It's not in the interest of the political of the political process to point out the ninety eight percent agreement, right? Because you don't get elected for saying, "Yeah, I actually agree with the guy on ninety eight percent." But here's a subtle tweak that I would add: you get elected by saying that guy's going to ruin everything, and I'm going to fix everything. Let's not even talk about McCain and Obama. I just yeah. mean in general terms. I, I tend to look at it a little differently, at least these, this cycle. And I have to say, I haven't had the kind of dialogue with the economic advisors for the candidates that you apparently have. But, you know, I look at it on taxes. You've got one candidate that wants to make the Bush tax cuts permanent and cut the corporate tax rate from 34 to 25 percent. You've got another that wants to raise taxes on upper incomes pretty dramatically. Uh, you know, no one has run proposing an income, cap gains, and dividends tax increase as a major party nominee in my lifetime. Remember, the first major tax cut of cap gains took place in 78 and was signed into law by Carter. Um, so you have that difference. Uh, with regard to trade, I think you've got the starkest difference you've had between two major party nominees in at least two generations. I mean, Barack Obama at least the way he's campaigning. But I feel like you're doing exactly what I mentioned. No, I'm just, okay, I'm so just taxes, saying these are, these are real taxes differences. I mean, he's, he's critical of NAFTA and says he wants to revisit it. This is Obama. Right. But so he says as, he wants to renegotiate the North American Free Trade Agreement. And, on, you and, and I both know he's... Well, I'm just talking about how he's campaigning. Right. He's what? He's not going to do that? Listen, I did a story about <laughs> I did a I did a lot of reporting on NAFTA, and I will tell you right now, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton have are outspoken supporters of NAFTA. When you at, when you talk about the renegotiation, they're talking about minor, irrelevant tweaks. Mm-hmm. They are not really talking about renegotiating, renegotiating NAFTA. That's ridiculous. The leading Republicans, leading Democrats, just quickly, some of the things they agree on. Mm-hmm. Trade is good. NAFTA is good. Columbia FTA is good. They can't tell people in union halls that they think this, but they tell me they think this. Mm-hmm. The Fed should play a non-political role in our economy and should um, – these kinds of major bailouts are a horrible idea in the long term and we need to address them. Much regulation needs an overhaul in a smart, principles-based way. There's broad – yes, taxes, you're right. 
totally different. Public rhetoric, totally different. But the core is the same. So what if I hired you and I said, you know what, I'm running for president in 2012 as a Republican. Here's my po policy. I want to come out and say I am 98% in agreement with the Democrats. We basically see the world the same way. We have some minor tweaks here and there. What would you tell me as your, as your I, What I would do is I would take your voting record, assuming you came out of the Senate, and these two did, and lay it side by side with your opponent's voting record on every fiscal issue that's come to the floor when you were both serving together, and I'd be able to demonstrate that you voted opposite each other 95% of the time. But what if I said, I don't care about that. All I want is to point I out would, that I would, the core I would say issues— you I would say you can't run from your record. If, if you voted one way and he voted another— 95% of the time, you can't agree with each other. Well, let's forget about the current the campaign. I want you to tell me, because I think it's true, you can't run that kind of campaign. You can't run a 98% agreement I, campaign. I don't think you can get away with running a campaign that is inauthentic and isn't true. I don't think you can create, But I think they are inauthentic I, I, and untrue we, we right just, now. We just disagree on that. I think that there are real policy differences between these two yes. candidates. But I'd I think say, if you try right, to let's give it 80%. Over, what I would say to a candidate is, look, don't invent a difference where there isn't one, but where there's a difference, what's the point in denying it? Blow it up. Explode it. No, Make I a 10 percent difference into 100 percent No, I didn't difference. say that. You're trying to put words in my mouth. Let's yes, do, I am. Let's do, <laughs> let's do the piece about regulation. We know that after the last couple of weeks of bailouts that there's going to be a lot of regulation that happens on Wall Street. People are asking for it. From the conservative side, what do you want to see for new regulation on Wall Street? Well, I think what you're likely to see, um, it, it's awfully hard to predict when we're right in the middle of it and it's happening right on top of us. But I think what you're likely to see is an increase in capital requirements, both at Fannie and Freddie and some of the investment banks. Um, you, you know, the problem with that is that's not a free lunch either because the whole point of Fannie and Freddie was to keep the mortgage market liquidity going by being able to take mortgages, bundle them, and securitize them, and then be able to market them. If I loan you money, let's say $100,000, pick a number out of a hat, for a house, and you, know, you, you pay that mortgage back to me over 30 years, if I hang on to that mortgage, I can't go out and loan more money until I get it back from you. But if I take that mortgage and with others, I bundle it and sell it, then I can take the money I got from selling the bond and go loan more money. It's an essential function in the, in the successful operation of a 21st century mortgage market. So every time you increase capital requirements, you do what? You limit the amount of mortgages that people can issue. So my only message to people is, yes, we need more regulation. Yes, we need to have stricter control. But you better be careful that you don't kill the goose that laid the golden egg. And that is the mortgage market. If that ceases to function... The whole economy is going to grind to a halt. Whatever we do with regard to regulation, it should be designed to make capitalism and market capitalism function to do what it's supposed to do, which is to rationalize the creation of wealth in a way that's consistent with integrity and transparency. But if it is designed instead to punish people, you, you need to be careful because you could end up hamstringing the ability of a marketplace to create wealth. That's all you, I'm saying. Are you also saying that right this second, we don't know what that regulation would look like? I, I think that's probably right. Although, as I said, I think the increased capital requirements is, is, is a virtual certainty. And, you, you know, 
when when people say, well, you know, nobody really came in and cracked down on these people, I've talked already about the public policy that helped to drive this. If you, I guess it, I guess it was um, the Wall Street Journal the other day that pointed out that if the Federal Reserve is providing people with money which after inflation is effectively free, you eliminate the moral hazard of risk-taking. And so people in an economy are going to act rationally. If I say to you, I tell you what, I'll let you take out a home equity loan on your house for $100,000 at 1.5%, and you can take that money and go down and buy a condo in South Florida, which is increasing in value at a rate of 10 to 15% a year, people in an economy are going to act rationally. They're going to take the money and go. And that's what happened, and, and the bubble has burst, and now we're all going to have to pay the price. All right. got to catch a flight. I do. Thank you. Thank you very much, Thanks Ralph a lot. Reed, Republican strategist. Um, I still got to think it's a lot easier for the other side. They, get, they can put it all on a T-shirt. You can't. Our, our T-shirt just says he wants to raise your taxes. It, it works just fine. All right. Well, that was helpful from Ralph Reed, uh, sometimes frustrating, but but helpful, I think. Uh, Laura, you have some questions from our listeners. Yes, I do. Someone named Blue Stem writes in to say, where is all this bailout money coming from? Is it adding to our debt? So far, uh, most of it is not adding to our debt. The Federal Reserve Bank is a very strange entity. It's not like any other bank. It's not actually technically part of the U.S. government. It's sort of its own thing. But it has a balance sheet. It has money that it itself has. And then in addition, it's responsible for the money that the U.S. government has. That's a little complicated. We don't have to get into all the details. But basically, it's not yet. Most of this money has not yet added to our debt. But eventually, the Fed does need to get new money from the U.S. government. So eventually, it probably will be added to our debt. On to another F something or other. This one on the FDIC. Peter and some other people, I think Charlotte, want to know, if the FDIC has something like $51 billion in its reserves to cover bank failures, and we get a bunch of bank failures, like people are saying Washington Mutual doesn't look all that great right now, what happens if we get enough failures that they break the bank on that $51 billion the FDIC has to insure your deposits and mine? If they run out of their $50 billion or whatever it is, the U.S. government is going to pay the rest. So, Would that get added to our national debt? Yeah. I mean, either. Yes. Basically, yes. That would, that would be a terrible thing. Well, if it got – it depends where it goes. Again, it would make headlines. Yes, that would make headlines. Yeah. If the FDIC spent all of its – all of its current money, that would be a big deal. Okay. Here's a question that comes in in a couple of forms from Larry and from Heather. They want to know all the billions that were lost in the subprime shenanigans and also, I think, in the stock market this week. Where did they go? If the pool of money, the global pool of money is shifting in unprecedented and chaotic ways, Heather says, who's who's getting it and how do we get it back? First of all, there is less money in the world. There is less value in the world than there was a year and a half ago. Um, when you buy a house for $100,000 and then five years later someone tells you, oh, your house is worth 200000 because other houses in this neighborhood sold for that much, you didn't get 100000 You didn't steal 100000 or take 100000 from someone else. The market 
effectively there was more value in the world. So value isn't money. In other words, we're looking at it and we're saying money disappeared, but you're saying value is something different. Value well, is kind value of abstract. Value in this case is denominated in money. Or if, if you cashed in the house, you would get money. You would get money. It's not you would get – I mean you might get a feeling of goodness or something like that. But, um, but yes, I mean as a general rule since the dawn of say the Industrial Revolution, overall there is more value. There's more m- – dollar-denominated or currency-denominated value in the world every year than the year before, except for those years where there's less. Like 2008. Like 2008. And there's going to be a lot of estimation. I mean, someone told me, and I haven't checked into this, that global market capitalization, so the value of all stocks in the world, has lost $19 trillion over the last year. Um, that's on a base of somewhere around $70 trillion. All these are rough, and I'm not a that's just what an economist told me. I'm not saying that's definitely true. Now, there are people getting rich. There are people who are making bets. There are people who for years have been making bets against housing growth, against the success of the housing bubble, and they've made money. But if you add up how much they made and how much the market overall lost, we are down, down a lot. It's a smaller world after all. It is a smaller world after all. There is less value in the world. And remember, there is a subprime housing crisis here, but also in London, in Shanghai, and other parts of the world. So, All right. This is from Chris, who I think is probably in some ways a young you. He says, I'm a 16-year-old who is very concerned about the damage that is happening now and caused by my not, – not caused by my generation, but will affect my generation more than any other – could you just elaborate upon what things will look like five to ten years down the road? Just like, you know, when you have a flu and you feel awful and you just can't remember feeling good and you can't imagine feeling good. And then you feel good and you think, God, I don't even think I was Who that had the sick. the flu? Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, every recession feels awful. One of the worst damages is the damage to confidence and belief in the system itself. Chris is feeling that right now. This is a pr- yes, we all are. This is a pretty bad one. This is this is a really this is, the, 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 the this is a time to question the fundamentals of our financial system. I don't think it's a time to question whether five or ten years from now. I mean, I don't know if in specifically 2013 or 2018 the economy will be booming or busting or whatever. But I think overall we have every reason to imagine economic growth will continue, productivity growth will continue. We, Over time, overall, the economy will do better overall in the future than it did in the past. Thank you. Thank you. I hope, I hope, that's, I hope that's true. I'm believing it. Check us out. We're at npr.org slash money. Every little thing is gonna be alright.